The singing of the doxology by the PCC student body begins Pensacola Christian College Chapel. At each chapel service, students have an opportunity to receive spiritual exhortation and enrichment during a time of music and meditation on God's Word. This podcast shares selected recent chapel messages from guest speakers, faculty, and staff. Welcome to the PCC Chapel Podcast. Well, good morning to you all and excited to be back and have this uh, final opportunity. As Yesterday we were looking uh, about the, the wilderness that it, it's possible we as a culture and as a people, as a remnant of God living in this land, uh, find ourselves now in uh, difficult times. Uh, we looked at the passage from First Chronicles that talked about uh, the sons of Issachar and how they were commended because they understood the times in which they lived, but they didn't understand the times as simply to know facts. They understood the times in order that the people of God, so that Israel might know what to do, and that is where we're headed today. We looked a little bit at a couple, actually we only looked at really one of these uh, threats that I believe are aligning themselves today in our culture. And I guess we, uh, let me get this started. <clears throat> that are aligning in our culture today, and that first one was the deep possibility, I believe, that uh, God has, in fact, given our culture over to a reprobate mind. We looked at that, the Greek word, adokimon, uh, which means that the mind no longer has the ability to logically uh, discern, uh, especially right from wrong, to discern those things that God would want us to know about him, about us, about our relationship, about the world in which we live in. And we see increasingly evidence around us in our culture, I believe, that that is in fact the case. And we're going to talk today about the biblical way forward in light of all of that, because I think we need to have wisdom uh, as we live in that kind of a culture in the times in which we find ourselves, so that as we go forward, we would go forward walking in wisdom rather than walking in our own strength or walking in our, our own wisdom. We want to follow the wisdom of God. And so these were the seven threats that we uh, introduced to you, just talking primarily about the first one, mentioning a little bit about the rise of homo deus, that the selfishness of man has no longer been bridled by, um, by an ethical code that says it's not right uh, to serve yourself, it's not right to simply follow your own heart, it's not right to be self-centered and selfish. When you throw all that off, the end of that is what I believe we see happening in our culture where the individual man now believes that he is divine. He wouldn't say that, you wouldn't go up to someone openly and they would say, I'm God but we act that way. We act that way in terms of ethical uh, things, for that we would say, uh, if I'm a woman, you must bow down to that as a divine proclamation. I can make up my own pronouns, and the world must bow down to that. If you do not, you will be considered as a blasphemer and treated that way. So we find ourselves uh, not only in a time where it appears as if the mind is no longer following what is common sense, but uh, individuals have increasingly um, seen themselves as if they are divine. 
And I think there's only one biblical way forward, and this may uh, surprise some of you. I hope it doesn't, but it is a little bit out of the stream of thinking today, but I will submit to you, I think the biblical way forward is found in the biblical family. So because of that, I want to introduce to you a little bit of that attack, not much, but just a little bit, because to understand the depth and the immensity of the attack that we see upon the biblical family, we need to also understand why the family is so critical to the design of God, uh, and why in the very beginning, it would be proper to say, when we see Satan in the garden tempting Eve, that the very first thing that happened was that the relationship between Adam and Eve uh, was broken. Not only the relationship between God and man, but between Adam and Eve, and fingers began to be pointed at each other. And if you examine and look at the Scripture, you will find that the enemy has been attacking the biblical family from the very beginning. It's It's a theme throughout, and that includes all of the depravity associated with the male and female, and the understanding of human sexuality and the perversion of sexuality in general all goes to attack the biblical family, from abortion in the past to abortion in the present and and so forth, and self-centeredness itself. So in order to look at this, I want to take you back uh, to the garden for a minute where I believe we find one of the most amazing aspects of the nature of God. It astounds me. Every time I I go back into this cave and think about uh, God himself and why he did what he did in in creation. Because what we find is that God created uh, plants, for example, and he didn't create the plants simply to look good. He created the plants in such a way that he then delegated to those plants. He equipped those plants. He charged the plants that they themselves might be a creative agent, that they would produce this thing called a seed, and the seed would bring forth new life. It's an amazing thing. It's too familiar to us, but if you spend the time thinking about it, meditating upon it, ask yourself, why does God do this this way? He does it with the animals as well. God could have created all the animals all the time, but he chose not to, and I think because of his very nature, that he created the animals, male and female, He charged that they would come together and they themselves would be creative agents bringing forth new life and eventually filling the earth. We see the same with Adam and Eve, that God equipped them, empowered them, charged them, and sent them to be fruitful, to multiply and fill the earth. But the thing that is important for us to recognize in all of this is that God is establishing this, uh, referred to it as his modus operandi, we'll talk about that in a second, where God creates his creatures, he equips them, he empowers them, he charges them, he sends them so that that fruit of those creatures would bring him glory. Remember Jesus said that by this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and that fruit brings glory to God. And so this is that modus operandi of of God. But in this, God has designed and and set forth that the fruitfulness of his creatures would come from the relationships that he made. 
The world, the flesh, and the enemy tend to distort those relationships, but in God's design, those relationships are for the purpose of bringing forth the fruit that brings glory to God. So relationships are critical from the very beginning. I would submit to you that for this reason, the world, the flesh, and the, and the, the enemy have been attacking the notion of relationships, divine relationships, from the very beginning. So when we take a look at God's character here for a second, and with trembling we try to diagram the triune nature of God, but what we understand, especially now through Christ and and the word that has been given to us, that God is not a monolithic God. He is not like the Islamic Allah, who is the monolithic one, and therefore has nothing within his nature to even begin to create anything that has relationships or to talk about any of the relational elements of life that we know almost inherently, love and communication and trust and all of those things, they're found and bound up in the very triune nature of God and that's why we have them and that's why God created things the way he did. We know that he is one, and yet we know that God is, we would, we would describe it as a socially complex being, three persons. It is mysterious, and yet it's not mysterious because we see it throughout the world. We see all of the creation of God created in such a way that there are these diverse parts and pieces that come together in a relationship. That God is relational, and that he provides unity with the diversity that is found within himself, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, all brought together in one, and we find that throughout the creation as well. And it is for this reason I'm convinced that we find in in Genesis why God creates the way he does. And that when we then look at the family and understand why God has brought these diverse pieces together, diverse meaning male and female, and bringing them together in this unity for the purpose of bringing forth godly fruit, as we read in Malachi. So God's design for social order, and if you've been through the Truth Project, we spend uh, a number of weeks talking about this design for social order by God, that he is the one who has created these institutions. We read in Romans 13 that God is the one who has instituted uh, the state. He's the one who has determined the pieces and the parts of that institution we call government, the king and his relationship to God, and the citizen and their relationship to the king and their relationships to God. All of those are part of the blueprints that God has given to us in his word And all of these social institutions that God has made have been given to us for the blessings that come to us if we follow his design and the curses that come to us when we refuse to follow that design as we see in uh, the world today. And I would submit to you that the family, and that's why I have it put in the center here, is the headwater Uh, for all of those institutions because it is out of the family, the godly offspring in Malachi that that God had intended to come from the family. It's from here 
that the family then produces children who have a biblical work ethic. It's from here that we get trustworthy workers. It's here we get ethical employees. It is here that we get ethical owners who make ethical products by ethical means. Boy, do we need a refresher today in the sphere of labor of what it means to act in an ethical way, to produce products that are ethical. But the family also produces righteous citizenry. The citizenry, uh, as, as many of the founders of, this, of our country spoke often, that if the citizenry become ethically corrupt, then all of the foundations will dissolve. And so it's the righteousness in the citizenry that brings about uh, a, a, a prosperous and a fruitful state. But not only that, it's the righteous leaders, righteous statesmen who head with wisdom and integrity. They should come from the headwaters, that biblical family and those relationships that God has made there. The same is true for the personal relationship that we have with God. It produces that godly offspring that produce righteous worshipers, true worshipers of the true God. And in the church, we get righteous leaders. Why? Because the family has, has produced those righteous leaders. Well, there is one social system there in the Truth Project, if you're familiar with that. It was the very last social system we dealt, dealt with in that series. And I think that's appropriate because as we move on now, and as we've created the Engagement Project as the next step, it deals specifically with uh, this social institution. And I am convinced it is in this social institution that we're going to find uh, the, the biblical way forward because the family has been charged with the responsibility to love their neighbor and the church has been uh, charged with the responsibility to equip the saints and to equip the saints would then obviously mean that the saints need to be equipped in all things but in their love for their neighbor. I think this is the ground, this is ground zero and it is here that we uh, would turn our attention now to the royal law, as the scripture calls it. And I will submit to you that it is here we find the biblical way forward. Some incredible passages that uh, were lost on me for most of my, my Christian walk. And yet they are, they are incredibly powerful. And I think they're incredibly clear. In James chapter 2, 8, if ye fulfill the royal law, here we have the royal law, if ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. And I'll call your attention to the fact that the Greek provides for us a definite article here. This is not a, a law. The, the scripture does not say, if ye fulfill a royal law, uh, love thy neighbor, it's if you f fulfill the royal law, an implication that there's only, only one, and that is substantiated for us in other passages. Let me show you one from Galatians. As Paul uh, is writing, as the, as the Spirit of God is moving him to write this, and a, a most astounding passage for me, it's stunning, actually, for all the law, 
all the law is fulfilled in one word. Now, the Greek word for word is logos, which means it's not fulfilled in one English word. It's fulfilled in one thing, one logos. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. This is stunning to me. That God would declare to us through the writing of Paul here that all the law is fulfilled in this one thing, and that is to love thy neighbor, the royal law, to fulfill the royal law. So let's look at this briefly, because one of the the problems that we have, and I will speak for myself, my personal experience is that this, this phrase, love your neighbor, has become a phrase that is almost meaningless to us today, especially in Western Christianity, and has been turned into something uh, different than what I, I believe God wanted us to see it as. So definitions are critical. They're always critical. We were in the apologetic class yesterday talking about uh, the problem of evil and how important it is uh, when you build a relationship with people and get to the point where you can discuss these things and they, they evidence the problem of evil, uh, that you talk about the definition of evil. Because for those who do not have a biblical worldview, for those, for example, who are are caught up in the philosophy of naturalism, the question, what is evil, is a very, very revealing question. And we need to do that here. One of the reasons is because the English word L-O-V-E has been so distorted in our culture today that it is important for us to recapture uh, what that word means. We might say, and you might hear today in our culture, someone who would say, I I love this song, or I love these shoes, or I love this color, or I love my truck. And the way we use that word today is primarily, I have a deep affection for these things that enhance my script, that enhance my story, as opposed to what I believe God has delivered to us in his word. And so I offer this definition to you. After years and years of study and and consultation and so forth, that when we look at the Greek word agapeo and the, the Hebrew word hesed in the Old Testament, that I offer to you this definition of that true agapeo love, and it is this. It is the steadfast sacrificial zeal that seeks the true good of another. The steadfast sacrificial zeal that seeks the true good of another. And by the way, if you want to ponder it, I think that grace is a special application of of God's love, that it is the steadfast sacrificial zeal that seeks the true good of an enemy. Who could imagine that anyone would have a steadfast, sacrificial zeal that seeks the true good of an enemy, and yet that is what God has done for you and for me. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and it is this love of God that we must recover if we're going to understand what God means and as he's charged us to love our neighbor. And so the second word that is critical for us to understand is the word neighbor because as I have been doing this for years and years now, I find that there are many, many Christians who want to define neighbor 
in a way that's very weird and strange. And so this may shock you, and it shouldn't shock you, is that uh, the Greek word for neighbor is plazion, and that word means the one who lives near, as we would expect that to mean. And so when we look at the command to love our neighbor, it is that we are to have a steadfast sacrificial zeal that seeks the true good of the one who lives near you. And I believe that that is what is going to radically change the culture and that is the biblical way forward. Now, I've done this many, many years and I have heard a dozen what I call yabats. And you may have a yabat right now in your mind. Yeah, but one of the most frequent ones I hear is, yeah, but you don't know my neighbor, uh, which implies that, you know, that statement implies that, well, if you knew my neighbor, then you would say, no, okay, oh my, yeah, you don't need to love that person, right? Or the G, you could argue that with Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, you, you don't know my neighbor. He says, well, I do know your neighbor and I can understand, you don't need to love them. No, that's not what the scripture is saying. But here's one I think is very important for us because I've seen it so often that we, we have taken love your neighbor and we have turned it into some sort of a philosophical statement. I am absolutely convinced it is not, that it is literally what God wants us to do. And I would submit to you that for the first 200 years in Christianity, this is how Christianity spread. Why? Because they said, well, that's what Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor. And that's what Paul said. All the commands are summed up in this one thing, love your neighbor. And that's how Christianity sped, spread for over 200 years. And then we decided we had a better idea of how Christianity ought to be done. So we have, we have this uh, thought that love your neighbor is just a philosophical thing rather than literal. And I will call your attention to a, a, a wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis I think applies here. He says, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. And I think that is... Therein is the reason why. We would rather turn love your neighbor into some sort of a philosophical thing rather than the literal meaning that I believe in which it should be regarded. So the royal law brings us a new perspective. I think it's a renewed perspective and it also brings us a renewed vision, a family vision. And that means that we're we're thinking now in terms of neighborhoods. That's why we get the word neighborhood. It's because that's where neighbors live. And the Christian families live next door to other neighbors. I want to look at this vision for just a second. Supposedly, there are 80 million evangelical Christians in this country and 240 million others. And I know we're not distributed exactly like this, but in terms of just thinking how brilliant this is of what... God has called us to do as we are distributed around the, the world and around our nation, that if we simply began to fulfill the royal law to engaging those on the left and right and across the street 
uh, bringing those names before the throne of God. Then overnight, that is 80 million engaging 240 million. That is our entire population overnight. Now, I'm not saying that people are saved overnight. What I'm saying is that now the people of God, fulfilling that priestly duty, fulfilling what God had told them to do and asked them to do to begin to pray for those people, the entire nation is covered. It's brilliant. And that is why I am convinced that the primary work of the kingdom, because of the royal law, the primary work of the kingdom is entrusted to the common everyday Christian family. And I think this is the biblical way forward. This is ground zero in the work of the kingdom. Okay, so what does this look like? I want to introduce to you uh, quickly. On your left, Dr. Rosaria Champagne, and on your right, uh, Ken and Floy Smith. Floy had gone to be with the Lord when I had a chance to interview her. Dr. Rosaria Champagne, Rosaria, Rosaria Champagne, professor at Syracuse University, teaching queer studies, living with her lesbian partner, authoring LGBTQ policy, a militant pro-abortionist, hating men, hating fathers, and now she's a pastor's wife homeschooling her children. How in the world does that happen? Well, I want you to listen and she will tell you how. Many times people have said to me, and I don't think they mean it to be quite this rough, but like basically, how did you get here? <laughs> and, and the answer was, you know, 500 plus meals at Ken Smith's house. Farmers keepers came to the city and there were 45,000 who were there. Uh, she wrote an article in the newspaper following that, talking down the idea of men and fathers I was not just at that point, you know, the, the lesbian next door who quietly sold insurance and, you know, just wanted to live a quiet life. I was also a gay rights activist and I had co-authored the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse and, um, you know, when I had written an article uh, protesting the promise keepers, one of the younger elders in the church put that article on Ken Smith's desk and said something to the effect of, we need to shut her up, she's trouble. To which Ken responded, oh, maybe Floyd and I should have her over for dinner. We didn't think anything about it. Okay. This was our lifestyle. When I started meeting with Ken and Floyd Smith, I was really doing that just to, um, I was working on a book project trying to prove that the Bible had no application in a secular world, but I had to understand the Bible well enough to, to critique it. And so I really thought of Ken Smith as my unpaid research assistant. Well, we really fell in love with the gal. She just was fun. Uh -huh. She was a pleasure to know. Almost immediately, my life got a lot nicer with these Christians in it. So it wasn't that Ken and I would have these, you know, fiery apologetic arguments about Romans 1. It was that Jesus' words, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, took on a, a real lived, tactile, taste and see dimension to it in the home of Ken and Floyd Smith. And then in the context of that kind of love and patience, um, I started to openly ask some of the harder questions that my worldview couldn't really answer. And Ken and Floyd were patient and present. 
we accept her as a friend. We also understood enough theology to know that it, she did not make the decision. She responded to the Lord. She had to be convicted. How did somebody like you, you know, get here? And the biblical answer, the biblical answer is um, before the foundations of the world, the Lord had set me apart. And then I lived in rebellion for years and years. And then the Lord sent a Christian neighbor to come get me. Now, I want to ask you, uh, well, I'm going to ask myself a question, and you can listen in and apply it if you want to yourself. But here is, here is the disturbing question. What if I had lived next door to Dr. Rosaria Champagne? What if your family had lived next door to Dr. Rosaria Champagne? Would there have been a meal at all? How many meals did she say? There were 500 meals. Another question, do you really believe that God can do this? And I'm not asking you a question, do you believe that God can take Dr. Rosario Champagne, uh, what we might call the icon of the left, and now a pastor's wife homeschooling her children. She is the real deal, by the way. If you don't believe that God can do that, then we have another discussion. Right? What I'm asking is, do you believe that God can do this through you? Because you have everything that you need. God has equipped you with everything you need. So this is the vision that I'm hoping and praying that we might find begin to happen in families, Christian families all over our country and maybe even the world where we've lost that vision, where we would gather our family together. Johnny, Susie, do you know why we're here? Do you know why we live here? We don't live here because we've got a great granite countertop. We don't live here because we've got a great backyard. We live here because Mrs. Smith lives across the street. Papa, that bitter old woman, yes. Yes, Susie, we live here because Mrs. Smith lives there. And Mrs. Smith lives there because we live here. We will build real relationships with those providentially in our Jerusalem through prayer and action, with grace and wisdom and truth, being attractively winsome, tearing down walls, building up trust, <clears throat> doing the work of the kingdom. You see, I am absolutely convinced that true uh, truth and true agapeo love are gonna drive us into real relationships. And I confess to you yesterday, most of my Christian walk, I did drive by Christianity. I didn't do real relationships. I didn't do it. Why? Because it was sacrificial. But I think that's what has to happen. I think it drives us into those deep relationships, much in the same way that we see Jesus building that deep relationship with those three men. Speaking the truth is most effective when it's done in the context of a significant relationship and even more so in the times in which we find ourselves. And so this was an incredible statement from Rosaria. In her book, her first book, uh, The Secret Thoughts of a, an Unlikely Convert, and certainly she was an unlikely convert. Ken was wise to know that he could only speak truth as deep as our relationship could stand. Ken was wise to know he could only speak truth as deep as our relationship could 
stand. I spent several days with Rosaria and, and her husband Kent, and, and during those days I asked her questions that were primarily asking what would have happened if I had lived next door to Rosaria, if I had approached her the way I used to approach people, and she very bluntly told me that she would not be here. So I'll introduce you briefly to a, uh, a research book, uh, quickly. It is a book that was written by uh, two campus ministry folks went back and interviewed over 2,000 students that had come to Christ, and they were astounded to find that every one of these students went through what they call five thresholds. They didn't skip one, they didn't go from two to four, and the very first threshold, not one student came to Christ without this very first threshold, and that was they entered into a trusted relationship with a Christian. Isn't that astounding? Especially when Western Christianity today, I'll be blunt, we don't do relationships. None of them came to Christ without a trust relationship. And the second one, I'll just talk about that because you heard it in the clip there. The second was in that trusted relationship, as Rosario put it, I began to ask those questions that my worldview couldn't answer. You remember Polycarp, call your attention for this reason because you remember Polycarp from Smyrna People hated him, why? Because the, the, the Roman world was filled with the Roman gods, just like today we're filled with homo deus. And increasingly you will find that your position in Christ and your biblical worldview would become disgusting, increasingly so to that culture as it did in Polycarp's day. And they believed that if they could just kill Polycarp, they would have destroyed the church. Why? Because they believed that, as the world believes, that every institution is held together by the leader. And so they killed Polycarp. You may remember the story. They, uh, they burned him at the stake, but God providentially kept the flames from burning him, and so they had to kill him with a spear. But the thing that was so amazing to them was that the church thrived in the midst of that. I, I, think, of, I think of COVID, that we've... We've all gone through that. And I think it now is the COVID reveal. Why? Because what it, it revealed to us that the church is not acting and operating correctly. You see, when the state comes in and cancels the church, if, if your equation of Christianity is Christianity equals Sunday morning attendance, and the state comes in and puts an X across that, what happens? Are we floundering around? Which we did. The church should have flourished in the midst of that. It should have flourished. Why? Because the primary work of the kingdom is happening in the neighborhoods. Christians engaging, building deep relationship with their Christians. It matters not if the state comes in and stamps with a boot on top of the institutional church. I'm not dismissing the institutional church. If you want to know how that works, go to China and you will see a, f a flourishing church there. So there's a time when the, when the church then walked away from, from the royal law and power had been consolidated at the top and the mass of people became fruitless. They showed up on Sundays, they got sprinkled, put money in the coffer and left. And the, and the, the movement arose with with a phrase, the priesthood of every believer. First Peter 2, but ye are a chosen, you 
You are a chosen generation. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I do not think it is wrong for you to consider that just as the priests are listed for us in, in the Old Testament with an ephod and the names of the tribes on each of those jewels, the royal law would lead us to assume that your neighbor's names are engraved on your ephod, and I would encourage you to begin to pray for them diligently. You've been listening to a message from Pensacola Christian College Chapel. You're welcome to pass this sermon along to others. Please don't charge for it or alter it without written permission from Pensacola Christian College. For additional information about PCC, visit us online at pcci.edu. Pensacola Christian College, empowering Christian leaders to influence the world for Christ.